Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. This is an archive edition of Talk of Iowa from IPR News. This week, we're listening back to our 2023 Talk of Iowa book club episodes. We've been reading Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants by Robin Wall Kimmerer. When the book was first published in 2013, Kimmerer, a botanist, hoped it would reach scientists and students. It was not an immediate sensation, but it was passed from hand to hand, reader to reader. Seven years after publication, it landed on the New York Times bestseller list and remained there for 139 weeks. More than 1.4 million copies have been sold, and it has been translated into 20 different languages. Last year, Wal Kimmerer received the so-called MacArthur Genius Grant from the MacArthur Foundation. Braiding Sweetgrass is part memoir, part science lesson, part cultural history, and what I would describe as a uh, gentle environmental manifesto. It asks readers to reconsider how they view and treat the natural world. Robin Walkimmer is a member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation and a distinguished professor at SUNY in New York. And here she is reading an excerpt from the book. Even before I arrived at school... I had all my answers prepared for the freshman intake interview. I wanted to make a good first impression. There were hardly any women at the forestry school in those days, and certainly none who looked like me. The advisor peered at me over his glasses and said, So, why do you want to major in botany? His pencil was poised over the registrar's form. How could I answer? How could I tell him that I was born a botanist? that I had shoeboxes of seeds and piles of pressed leaves under my bed, that I'd stopped my bike along the road to identify a new species, that plants colored my dreams, that the plants had chosen me. So I told him the truth. I was proud of my well-planned answer, its freshman sophistication apparent to anyone, the way I showed that I already knew some plants and their habitats, that I'd thought deeply about their nature and was clearly well prepared for college work. I told him that I chose botany because I wanted to learn why asters and goldenrod look so beautiful together. I'm sure I was smiling then in my red plaid shirt. But he was not. He laid down his pencil as if there was no need to record what I had said. Miss Wall, he said, fixing me with a disappointed smile. I must tell you that that is not science. That is not at all the sort of thing with which botanists concern themselves. But he promised to put me right. I'll enroll you in general botany so you can learn what it is. And so it began. That is Robin Walkimmer, author of Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. Just a few pages later, she demonstrates that there is indeed a scientific reason that asters and goldenrod look so beautiful together, but she also does much, much more. And I, I want to bring our expert readers into the conversation. In a few minutes, Derek Capello, a Ph.D. candidate in sustainable agriculture at Iowa State University, will be here, along with Sarah Dees, Assistant Professor of American Religions at Iowa State University. With me now is Kurt Miney, Senior Fellow with the Aldo Leopold Foundation. Hello, Kurt. 
Well, good morning. Thank you for inviting me to join you. Well, thank you so much for being here. And you knew Robin Wall Kimmerer before she <laughs> was a published author. Tell me a little bit about your relationship. Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, maybe we're showing our age, but uh, Robin and I go way back to uh, when we were in graduate school together. I'm calling you from Wisconsin or checking in from Wisconsin. So uh, we were both students at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. She was uh, pursuing her PhD in the botany department, and I had just begun my own graduate work uh, in our Institute for Environmental Studies here at UW-Madison, and turned out that the very first uh, semester I was in grad school, she was my TA in, in a class I was taking in general ecology. And we've been uh, friends ever since, uh, although very busy, um, not interacting too much, but actually more in recent years, um, we have reconnected and it's just been a thrill to watch her work um, reach such an amazingly wide audience. Do you remember when you first encountered this book? Oh, very well. Yeah. Um, uh, having known Robin, I was kind of tracking on her work over the years, and we'd been in professional settings together where we got a chance to catch up a little bit. So I knew where she was headed with her work and her writing. She put out a book um, before Braiding Sweetgrass that others are starting to read now because they're eager to read more of her work. But she published a book called Gathering Moss. Uh, prior to Braiding Sweetgrass, and I'm opening my copy right now to see that it was published in 2003. And that book uh, kind of gave the world notice that Robin Kimmer was finding a voice here. And she, in that book, particularly explores her own area of scientific specialty, which is, in the scientific terminology, bryophytes, the mosses um, of the world. And so through that, you know, uh, modest, most of us think of mosses as modest uh, plants on the landscape, uh, she was able to explore some of the themes that she would really dig more deeply into in breeding sweetgrass. And uh, so, yeah, um, I had a chance to watch her work over the years. And just one other quick thing I'd mention is that during those years, especially in the 2000s, she became well-known in our professional circles for her contributions to the emergence of traditional ecological knowledge, uh, known by its acronym TEK, um, and helping to bring the richness of indigenous worldviews and knowledge to the scientific community and, of course, beyond that now. This book, I mean, brings that part of her work into writing and has reached a popular audience, this traditional ecological knowledge. It also feels somewhat revolutionary, the way that she writes about both her traditional knowledge and her scientific knowledge, bringing them together when you read it, I know that that you <laughs> loved it immediately, but did you feel like this 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 is revolutionary? This, if people will read it, this could make a real impact. Yeah, I remember reading Braiding Sweetgrass really right after it first came out in 2013 because I was so eager, obviously, and I knew that she had been working on the book. So when I first read it, it was one of those books that I kind of swallowed whole. I I must have taken less than a day for me to read it. Wow. Um, just because, uh, again, a funny personal connection, but also those themes that you just mentioned 
and an appreciation of what she was doing was, I was going to say new and different. And I think Robin would be the first to say, you know, what I'm sharing here is not all new and different, and certainly isn't new in terms of the body of traditional knowledge, which goes back millennia. Um, but what she was doing in sharing exactly what you touched on, how do we reconcile our ways of seeing the world and knowing the world and finding our own role within the changing world? What I mean by all that is to say this braiding together of science, traditional ecological knowledge with scientific knowledge with her own personal experience, those three braids she speaks of in the early part of the book, no one had done it quite like this before. We have had wonderful, great, insightful, beautiful writings about nature and our relationship to it. But she was tapping into a way of braiding those together, again, to use her phrase, um, that was revolutionary. And I, I don't say that lightly. Um, it was uh, confronting the ills of separating these different ways of knowing in a way that sounded so fresh and just beautiful in, in terms of her, her writing. Throughout the book, she often quotes Aldo Leopold, and anybody mm -hmm. who does a lot of reading of environmental writers encounters a lot of quotes uh, by mm -hmm. Aldo Leopold. And, and of course, you know, we, we see quotes from Henry David Thoreau and, and from Rachel Carson. And sometimes I feel like the voices of some of the really important people who are involved in the environmental movement today are not heard as clearly or they don't become cultural touchstones in the way that, that some of these earlier thinkers have. But I feel different about Robin Wall Kimmerer. I feel like she has touched people in a way that will make her one of those cultural touchstones or maybe already has. What are your thoughts about that? Well, fundamentally, I agree that I think Robin's book stands on the shelves with those other great classics and the canon of environmental literature. Um, and like, just as those books in their own time are revolutionary because they push the boundaries forward of how we think about the world around us, the living world around us, but also push the boundaries on our relationships. And that's at the core of Robin's writing. So ironically, yes, you're, you're exactly right that the voices that we know so well and quote so often, um, they became classics for a reason because they tapped in, again, ironically, to somewhat the same themes of evolving relationships between people and between people and the land. And so uh, I see, tend to see uh, Robin's book as part of that ongoing, uh, <laughs> that, that library shelf Mm -hmm. But I also think uh, she is doing something so new and different, but again, hearkening back to older ways of knowledge in our traditional cultures. So um, that's what books of this kind do. They take the compost out of which they grow, but they're growing in new and different ways. And uh, Robin's you know, fasc fascination with plants grows on grows at that, at that boundary line between the scientific world and, and traditional knowledge. So yeah, welcome to not only Robin, but other wonderful voices emerging from so many different, different cultural backgrounds and perspectives. And it's part of what gives me encouragement for, for where we are, even despite the hard headlines we're literally hearing. Right. And, and this is a book that 
has broken through to popular culture in yeah. a pretty profound way as well. So we're, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. We are talking today about braiding sweetgrass, indigenous wisdom, scientific knowledge, and the teachings of plants by Robin Wall Kimmerer. And with me right now is Kurt Miney, Senior Fellow with the Aldo Leopold Foundation. Our other expert readers will join the conversation in just a moment. Derek Capello, a PhD candidate in sustainable agriculture at Iowa State University, and Sarah Dees, Assistant Professor of American Religions, also at ISU. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network. It's an archive edition of Talk of Iowa from IPR News. All this week, we're listening back to our 2023 Talk of Iowa Book Club episodes. I'm Charity Nebbe. Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants by Robin Wall Kimmerer. It is a book that asks readers to reconsider how they view and treat the natural world. In addition to sharing the science and teachings of plants, the book is also a memoir and cultural history. Wal Kimmerer is a botanist, distinguished teaching professor of environmental biology at SUNY, and founder and director of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment. She's also an enrolled member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation. And our expert readers are also here today, Kurt Miney. He is a senior fellow with the Aldo Leopold Foundation and a friend and colleague of Robin Wal Kimmerer. And uh, I want to introduce our other expert readers as well. Derek Capello is here, a Ph.D. candidate in sustainable agriculture at Iowa State University and a member of the Meskwaki tribe. Hello, Derek. Hi, Charity. Can you hear me? I can. Thank you awesome. so much for being here today. And Derek, I would love to hear what is your what was your initial reaction to the book? Oh, my goodness. I just think it's such a beautiful book to read. I think it really provides the reader a framework to kind of analyze what they think about their position within the earth and their relationship with the earth, I think is just a perfect first read for anybody that's getting that subject. And she dedicates an entire chapter to your specific field of study, the three sisters, corn, beans, and squash. <laughs> Was that pretty exciting to you? Yes, absolutely. The way she adds life to each of those crops, you know, the corn, bean, and squash, calling them sisters and talking about how they interact with each other and how they support each other. It's just just a beautiful thing to read. And we will talk more about the the three sisters and what we can learn from them in a few minutes. But I, I do want to ask you, we played an excerpt from the book earlier in the hour, and she talks about her experience at forestry school as being the only indigenous student at forestry school in a world that was also male-dominated. Um you have spent now a lot of time in academia, Derek, and, and I hope that some progress has been made. But as an indigenous scientist in academia, what was your reaction to her description? I would say that it was it's accurate. You know, there's not a lot of Native people that are in the higher levels of academia. And 
to be honest, I, I've told others that the reason, one of the main reasons why I took on this PhD project was that I want to be inspiration for other Native people. I want to show them that they can do it too. Derek Kipeyo, let's bring in our next expert reader as well. Sarah Dees is an assistant professor of American religions, also at Iowa State University. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Charity. Thank you so much for being here today. And tell me when you first encountered this book. Yeah, so I had heard a lot about this book and then decided to assign it in a class that I taught on Native American religions in the spring of 2020. Um, And it was just a wonderful text to incorporate into class because um, because Robin Wall Kimmerer is able to weave together many of the different uh, concepts and themes that I want my students to think about in the class. And it was very useful for the students just to see how she was able to, you know, bring stories about um, the land and ceremony together, about the significance of language and, and history and how it continues to affect us to this day. And so it was, it was a really wonderful text for them. And they enjoyed reading it as well, because it's, uh, you know, not your typical, you know, stereotypical, dense academic text. So it's also very approachable. Well, and I, I keep describing it, but, you know, there are so many elements to this book. I can imagine it being taught in a wide variety of classes, you know, spiritual classes, scientific classes, history classes. You know, she creative nonfiction would also be a really, oh, a really good fit yeah. for it as well. I mean, it's it's truly a remarkable book because it brings together all of these disparate elements in such a beautiful and powerful way. So, I mean, Sarah, in thinking about teaching it, was there, did you have a moment where I'm like, well, it's it's not really on this topic throughout. There's so much else going on there. That's true. Um, but that's something that I do, I did want to make sure that I, that I, that I did in my class. So I want students to not just think about, you know, religious traditions, um, but to think about the context that, that, um, you know, we're all subject to, to think about the history that has led to this moment in which um, today people are practicing traditions. And so for me, actually, the study of religion is not, you know, just about this category that we call religion, but it's also so closely connected to other aspects of history and culture and society. And I think that is especially true when we're thinking about indigenous religions, because um, for a long time, there's been this assumption among, you know, practitioners of Western traditions that religion is this category that's set apart, it's special, it's, you know, this sacred thing that's outside normal day-to-day activities. And for, for many indigenous traditions, that's just not the case. Aspects of spirituality um, and tradition are just interwoven into all facets of life. And so that for, the, for that reason, that makes this book such a wonderful example to help students, um, to help bring that idea home for students, that, um, that it's a complex, religion, spirituality is really complex, and it's not just this kind of small set-apart category. There is something that I know you worry about. It's something that we have seen happen far too often, and we will, I'm sure we'll continue to see it happen. I mean, the spirituality aspect of this book is so very beautiful. And, you know, as a, as a reader, it resonated deeply with me. But the cultural tradition that she comes from is not my cultural tradition. Mm-hmm. And you feel like it's really important to acknowledge that even if it resonates with you, that as a as a white reader or someone outside of this cultural tradition, 
you have to be aware of cultural appropriation. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that this suddenly becomes your culture, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so that's something that I do talk about with my students. So I've had Native students in my classes, but often the majority of students are non-Native. And it's important for us to to think about this. Um, You know, what I like to tell my students is that not all spiritual knowledge is just open and accessible for whoever wants it. You know, it's important to be Uh, mindful and respectful, and just notice what practitioners want to share, what knowledge is freely given, and accept that and appreciate it. Um, But one thing that while Kimmerer does really well is model how to, you know, live among a, a you know, a different nation to kind of live on in the lands of other communities and to learn about them in a way that's respectful. Um, so she models, you know, living in different parts of the country and learning about, you know, the history and the nation that she's um, staying in at that particular moment. And she models how to be sort of respectful. And um, so that's the, that is something that I talk about with my students is, I know, don't think that you can just kind of go out and take whatever knowledge you want. Um, and I think that you can look to this text for a good model of how to, um, you know, appreciate where stories come from, but also to be humble and respectful of your kind of your role in sort of the wider community that you're a part of. Derek, I'm curious, as a member of the Meskwaki tribe, is there a discomfort that you feel when something reaches popular culture that that is so open and vulnerable about indigenous culture is there a little fear that goes along with that um fear i would say no there's no fear i mean indigenous culture has maintained its integrity since the dawn of you know Time immemorial. Yes. And so it's still intact, and I don't think it's going to go anywhere, um, despite, you know, mainstream culture trying to appropriate it when it happens. Um, I don't don't feel any fear whatsoever about it. Well, speaking of of mainstream culture appropriation, um, also, she shares a lot of cultural history. And, of course, the, the United States government worked very hard to eradicate native cultures, native religions, native ceremonies. And and that part of the history, she weaves that throughout this book. And it's it's a part of history that I think a lot of people maybe are more familiar with now because of, of recent coverage of the boarding schools and the atrocities that, that were committed at those boarding schools. But uh, it's still a part of history that, that I think a lot of people don't know about. It's not something that, I mean, certainly was never, never made it into a history class that I took ever. Derek, I mean, what was your thought with uh, the history woven into the book? I think that's important that she, she brings that to the reader's attention. Um, like you said, this, this history isn't always in people's minds. It might not have been talk, taught to grade school students and stuff like that. So, no, it's, it is important that she brings it to people's attention. Um, it's really fascinating, though, that we are now having like this resurgence in interest in Native culture and their, and their ways of living because, uh, you know, at one time the government was actively working to get rid of it. And now we're trying to people are noticing, you know, maybe there's actually some things that we could learn from them. And uh, it's kind of beautiful, like the circle is finally coming around. Well, and I her own personal story, there's so much of this book that is memoir and her own personal story where her grandfather 
was taken to a boarding school and separated from his family and really lost so much of his connection to his culture. He never felt like he could go back as an adult. And so here we are two more generations uh, and Robin Wall Kimmerer is reconnecting with her culture and and learning some of these ways that that had had really were in danger of being lost personally. I mean, I, I think about the the indigenous people of her generation, and so many of them have to do so much work to connect with the cultures because because of the damage that has been done. Um, and Sarah, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that part of her story. Yeah, I mean, as Derek had said, it's an important aspect of history that I think um, we're starting to have a better understanding of. Um, and it helps to um, it helps us just to understand the importance of many of these programs that a lot of nations are working on right now. So there's been a resurgence of, of language revitalization. There's been language immersion schools. Um, and so this is really important. And I think knowing that history um, makes that clear why that's important. And so I really loved the um, the chapter where she talks about, you know, learning um, learning her language and, you know, putting the post-it notes throughout her house and um, and showing the, the important ways that language actually shapes your worldview and uh, relationality in particular and the ways that, you know, a language is not it, is not just, you know, a means of, you know, communication. It's a way of um, of kind of expressing you know, how you relate to the wider world, how you relate to each other. Um, and so I think that I, I was really happy that she included that um, that conversation of all of these efforts, these really important efforts today that are uh, underway to you know recover those those languages, those you know practices. Um, yeah, it's really important. Well, and one of the things that she writes about again in um, learning about her native language is the animacy of language. Yes. And I thought that that was so fascinating because she she talks about really a lack of nouns um, mm-hmm. <laughs> in the language because all of these things that we consider to be nouns in the English language, you know, are things have an, an animation mm-hmm. to them and a, a different place in the this, I guess in our in culture and interactions, and yeah. it's hard for me to put it into words. <laughs> yeah, well, one of the um, the things that she talks about that's related to this is this idea of you know of animacy or even personhood of who, you know who or what is a person, and um, and this idea that you know a lot of times people think about humans as people, and then uh, you know everything else around us is you know being inanimate. But in the language is built in this idea that, you know, the aspects of the features of the natural world around us are, you know, are, can, can have personhood, can have animacy. And so there's a term that scholars use in anthropology and religious studies. It's called other than human persons. And that's something that I talk about with my students. It's a different way of thinking about, you know, all of, of the everything that surrounds us and thinking that, you know, humans are not the only <laughs> maybe, you know, in many cultures humans are not the you know the most important 
you know, animate uh, species. Um, but that's <laughs> all built into the, the language, which is really cool. Well, and it also, you know, Derek, what we were talking about just a moment ago, it, it, she also writes about how few truly native speakers there are of her language. And I know so many indigenous languages are endangered. And there's just so much that's lost, so much cultural knowledge that's lost with the language. It's so much more than words. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Um, as Sarah was talking about, you know, giving personhood to other things besides humans, it, it, that includes responsibilities, too. Um, if you look at the soil as grandmother earth, you know, you're going to interact with the soil a little bit more differently than you would if it was just dirt or something to hold up your, your crops. Well, and, and Kurt, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well, because, you know, as, as someone who has had such a deep connection to the earth, but doesn't come from this same cultural background, I mean, how did that resonate with you? Mm. Well, I suppose, uh, Robin coming from her cultural background and me coming from my obviously different cultural background, um, I found immediate resonance, you know, um, maybe because I came out of the, the, actually the same scientific tradition as Robin of academic ecology and such. But also, you know, there's always been folks who understand the science can't solve your problems and doesn't address those relationships, the theme she explores early in the book. Um, and so I felt a kinship with Robin's way of seeing and uh, an understanding relationship. And so I was able to, I think, tap right into it. Um, and that speaks to a, something of a universality. Um, and there's a tension between universal ways of understanding the human condition, right? And the particulars that come out of the vast diversity of cultural uh, backgrounds and places. So, um, so yeah, uh, but it all comes down to that. It all comes down to understanding relationships. And whether you understand that in terms of cultural tradition in all of its vast diversity of expressions, or uh, scientific, in this case, ecology, which is, in essence, the science of relationship, right? So Robin's great contribution of blending those together, braiding them together, is what speaks to so many and provides something of a way of communicating across what can be divisive uh, cultural uh, barriers, right? Um, so so um, that's what comes to mind right away. <laughs> um, these are big questions. We are going to take another short break. We'll be back in just a moment. My expert readers are here today. Derek Capello is a Ph.D. candidate in sustainable agriculture at Iowa State University and a member of the Meskwaki tribe. Sarah Dees is assistant professor of American religions at Iowa State University. And Kurt Miney is a senior fellow with the Aldo Leopold Foundation. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club, and we have been reading Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants by Robert. Robin Wall Kimmerer. This is Talk of Iowa. Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. 
Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network. This is an archive edition of Talk of Iowa from IPR News. As the year comes to a close, we're listening back to our 2023 Talk of Iowa Book Club episodes. I'm Charity Nebbe. We've been reading Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants by Robin Wall Kimmerer. It's a book that asks readers to reconsider how they view and treat the natural world. Robin Wall Kimmerer is a botanist. She is also an enrolled member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation. She's also now a MacArthur genius. She's gotten a great deal of attention for this book, although it was not an instant bestseller. It took seven years after publication for this book to reach the bestseller list because it resonated so deeply with individuals who passed it from hand to hand, person to person, and it has become something of a phenomenon. With me today are expert readers, Sarah Dees, Assistant Professor of American Religions at Iowa State University, Kurt Miney, Senior Fellow with the Aldo Leopold Foundation, and Derek Capello, a PhD candidate in sustainable agriculture at Iowa State University and a member of the Meskwaki tribe. And Derek, I want to turn to you next because Kurt was talking about relationships and and how, you know, Wall Kimmerer does such a beautiful job really illustrating how important our relationships are with the other beings that are on this earth. She also really illustrates the importance of relationships in her chapter about the three sisters, corn, beans, and squash, and you have done a great deal of academic work also demonstrating in a scientific way the importance of those this relationship. So for people who aren't familiar, tell me why corn, beans, and squash are so important to each other. Um, sure, yeah. They're, they grow differently. So the structure of each plant is definitely unique from the other ones. Um, the squash with its wide leaves is able to shade out weeds and uh, it also has, you know, sharp little spikes on the stems to kind of keep out predators like raccoons and things like that. Um, and then the corn provides a structure for the beans to kind of wrap around. You know, I, beans, my beans in my garden are just climbing right up the corn and everything like that. They like to stretch towards the sun. And then the beans also give to the system by providing the nitrogen in the ground. You know, they're able to harvest that and provide that to the other plants. It's a really fascinating system, and it's just amazing that Native people kind of develop that. Yeah. And and you've been able to demonstrate that they grow better together than they do separately, which, you know, in our in our monoculture culture of agriculture um, is something that that it feels really profound. Yeah. The three sisters, they are, in my opinion, and the data showed me what I witnessed was that they are much better about growing food than monocrop plots. Um, particularly in our first growing season, we had the derecho blow through and the monocrop corn and the monocrop bean plots, just the monocrop plots were pretty much destroyed. Um, but we still, with the three sisters growing, we still had all this squash that was able to survive through the derecho. And there was just so much food we harvested off that garden that year. Had it been a garden of complete, uh, corn, you know, we would have had nothing at all. So that's where the beauty in the system lies is that it's sustainable and it's robust. The uh, one of the the important themes that comes back again and again throughout this book is reciprocity. And Kurt, uh, maybe I'll let you go first and talk a little bit about reciprocity because uh, I think that 
Robin Wall Kimmer does a beautiful job teaching us about reciprocity step by step by step. Um, what does it mean to you? Mm. Well, I'll start by answering that as I was prepping for joining you today, I had my electronic version of Robin's book and I got curious to see how many times she used the word reciprocity or reciprocal. <laughs> it shows up 120 times in the text, right? <laughs> yes. So it shows you it's probably the most significant word, single word in her book. And yet it, it is a term that is the definite, you know, it's defined, defines relationship. And my, my simplest way of saying this, I guess, a very complex, the reality, complex reality of reciprocity is goes back to what Derek just said, that in our relationships lies our identity, our resilience, our health, our well-being. And Robin takes that term that is not a scientific term, reciprocity, but shows how we can understand that through both cultural connection and through scientific connection out there and, you know, our understanding of how the world works. And again, the simplest way I can say it is, and I'm paraphrasing Robin in a way, is as long as we continue to take and take and take and take, we will not survive. When we learn to be reciprocal in our relationships, to give and give and give as much as we take, then we can return, hopefully, to a place of well-being. There's a phrase she uses um, uh, toward the middle of the book, uh, to the end of the book, where she says, there's a great longing upon us to live again in a world made of gifts. And she, in fact, describes herself as a gift thinker at one point in Braiding Sweetgrass. And so that gift thinking embodies this way of thinking about reciprocity in terms of relationships between people, but also relationship between people and the land and the world around us. I feel like when when we think about all of the environmental problems that we're facing on planet Earth right now, and the vast majority of those are the, the fault of human beings and the way that we have lived on this Earth, it's easy to think about humans as sort of a scourge on the planet. And um, Robin Wall Kimmer does not. And she does such a beautiful job showing us how humans are part of nature and can benefit from and benefit the natural world around them. And she does it. Sweetgrass is a, a metaphor in this book, but it's also something that she writes very specifically about the, the research about growing sweetgrass and learning that sweetgrass thrives when it is harvested of course, never, never take all the sweet grass, never take more than half of the sweet grass. But the sweet grass that is harvested in the indigenous ways is stronger and healthier than sweet grass that is left entirely alone. And that feels like the, to me in so many ways, the, the pivotal message of this book. I mean, Sarah, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I was thinking about as you were talking about gifts uh, I was thinking about the her description of uh, giveaway ceremonies. I haven't. I'm not as familiar with what she was describing, but uh, but I've studied the potlatch ceremonies from Northwest Coast, and so these are ceremonies in which uh, members of a community would 
you know, give, um, would give away, would show their wealth by giving away gifts to the rest of the community. And I, I love how Walkimer connects these, you know, these ceremonies of gifting um, with the ways that, you know, there's this give and take, there's this reciprocity um, with the natural world as well. Um, so she shows how, you know, some of the, the you know, features of human culture actually reflect um, ways that humans may best interact with um, their surroundings. Um, so I, I love that connection that she made. Well, and, and let's talk about the honorable harvest. I mean, Kurt, I know that that's, that's another part of the book that, that just really uh, profoundly touched you. Tell me, explain the honorable harvest and why you feel like it's such an important part of this work. Yeah. Um, and sometimes when we're asked to explain things, we just said, just go read Robin. Right. She's better than yes. me. <laughs> um, but um, let me put it in a little historical perspective, perhaps uh, real quickly, that when we think of the conservation and environmental movements, we we think of what you exactly touched on, and we see a, a sort of a negative relationship inherent in those traditions. And Robin is emphasizing the positive, mm. the healthy relationships that we have lived by for millennia and that we can aspire to again. And she makes the point that a lot of us have tried to make over the years that human beings are animals, and we all have to live by taking things from the world around us to survive and to thrive. Um, so we need not be ashamed of that because it goes along with being in the world. However, if the relationship is not, use the word you want, sustainable, resilient, healthy, um, we are going to suffer, and so will our fellow beings. And so Robin in her chapter on the honorable harvest comes straight at that point and says that these traditional, I shouldn't say traditional, these ways that we've had in the, especially in the last uh, couple hundred years of uh, colonial existence of simply taking and thinking of sustainability as just let's continue to be able to take as much as we can. Well, that's not an adequate definition then in fact, these relationships de depend on respect and honor. And so whether it's thinking about hunting or harvesting or gathering or foraging, all the ways in which we make our living from the world, we have to do so in a way that honors and respects the constraints upon our own consumption. But even more importantly, that in our process of living, we can regenerate the sources of our well-being and the work that Derek's doing. And I'm sure that others there at Iowa State and other places around the country are really starting to look at this. Um, so there's a Robin's definition and, and framing of the honorable harvest. I know how much that resonates with my own colleagues because it gives voice to something that we knew but didn't quite have the words to express. And there's, in fact, a great gratitude toward Robin for providing those words for so many others. Derek, what are your thoughts about the Honorable Harvest? You know, I think it's, I wish it was at the forefront of everybody's mind. You know, as I study sustainability, I see this culture that we have of, you know, capitalism and and hoarding wealth and things like that and i do wish that there was more of this of a mentality of giving back to others you know treading lightly rather than uh the opposite you know destruction and whatnot 
and um yeah she she it was a really good chapter i really appreciated reading that I feel like in some ways she, I described this earlier as a gentle environmental manifesto. And I feel like um, she sort of gently walks us to the point where we have to take a very, very hard look at how we live on this planet. And I feel like if she had started with the end of the book, she would have alienated a lot of people. But that's, I mean, that's one of the, the things that makes this work so powerful is she she doesn't, you don't feel judged, <laughs> but she she takes you on this journey with her. And then you really do have to, to think long and hard about how we live and how we need to change for the future of all species on this planet. Sarah, tell me a little bit about your thoughts about, I mean, things I could see people starting with the last two chapters and thinking this is really radical. <laughs> yeah, possibly. Yeah. And, you know, one, there's actually, a, I think, I don't know if you could call it a literary um, device that she uses. Well, I'll say one of my um, students, I remember talking about the symbolism that she uses and sort of the metaphors she uses throughout the book. And uh, I was thinking about how she walks us through trying to clean her pond and just what a long process that is and kind of, you know, kind of a, this micro environment and the story of trying to, you know, make it this something that she could swim in again. Um, and that kind of almost sets the stage for when she's talking about this, you know, this large sacred lake that has just been absolutely polluted. And, you know, now it's up to humans to try to clean up this mess, this monumental mess. And I thought as I was reflecting on it afterwards, I was like, well, how cool is that, that she, you know, showed herself trying to, at a micro level, trying to address to address this um, you know, <laughs> this pond in need of cleaning um, to kind of to kind of give everybody this this um, to show that everybody can have this attitude of, you know, let's do it. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be fast. But um, but, you know, if we at- if we have a, a um, this mindset of, you know, it's, it's possible we can do it, um, then it makes something really hard seem more attainable. We only have a couple of minutes left, and uh, I described earlier how this book became a bestseller. It took seven years for it to become a bestseller, and it was people passing it from hand to hand saying, I read this, and you need to read this. I got the book from my mom. You know, this is this is how it worked. But um, with about 30 seconds for each of you, uh, Derek, you can start. Why should people read this book? Oh, I think people should read this book because it can really open up the reader's mind to different ways of thinking about their relationships with the earth. And maybe uh, it's a humbling experience for me as I read through it. That's I think that we all deserve to be humbled every now and then. (laughs) Absolutely. Kurt, what do you think? Well, very quickly, why should they read it? Because it's chock full of wisdom. You'll learn things. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And it is a message of honest hope in a time of multiple crises. Mm. And we need those kind of stories more than we ever have. Sarah? 
I would say you can learn so much about so many different topics by reading this book. You can learn about history, um, you know, traditional ecological knowledge. You can learn about language, culture, and it's all woven together. And um, Robin Wall Kimmerer helps us to see the interconnectedness between all of these different facets of life. And I, when you talk about all of the different facets, I mean, I, I can imagine coming back to it again and again at different times in your own life and finding different important touchstones from from each of those moments because she she does share so much of her journey and we're all we're all on our own journey. Sarah, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. Sarah Dees, Assistant Professor of American Religions at Iowa State University. Derek Capello, thank you so much. Thank you, Charity. Derek Capello is a Ph.D. candidate in sustainable agriculture at Iowa State University and a member of the Meskwaki tribe. And Kurt Miney, thank you. Well, thank you. As Robin herself might say, it's been a gift, hasn't it? Kurt Miney is a senior fellow with the Aldo Leopold Foundation. We have been talking today about the book Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants by Robin Wall Kimmerer. This episode was produced by Caitlin Troutman. We had assistance today from Samantha McIntosh and Steve Cooper. I want to say thank you to Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City for providing books for our readers. And you can join the Talk of Iowa Book Club anytime. Go to Facebook. We've got a group on there. Just search for IPR's Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is Talk of Iowa.